Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Nikita! Howard! How are you? I'm great. I uh, I got my Manscaped 4 <laughs> this morning. There's nothing better than getting Manscaped in the mail. Is that right? Yeah. I haven't tried that. Knut, Knut, I talked to Nikita now at the beginning of the show. Okay. So uh, <laughs> we are at Panic with Friends, and um, we're so excited to have a third wheel. It's kind of like I was in South Beach, and they have a lot of those cars with three wheels on them. They're like, they, and they really are loud. You know those things? They're like people rent them for like an hour. Oh, and yeah, like there's assholes. one wheel on the back. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So, Nikita, you're the one wheel on the back, is what Knut's Got trying it. to say. <laughs> So Knut, thank you. That was well done. You weren't even trying to be funny and you were insulting and mean and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So uh, Nikita's uh, in Vancouver and she's not allowed to go outside. It's what, two years now? Two years, yeah. Sounds two right. years. Your skin still looks good for not having <laughs> seen the sun in two years. Nikita's a tennis player, correct? Yes. And does anybody play tennis besides you in the world anymore? I don't know. There's so many hot guys playing tennis. There you go. When I was into tennis, Bjorn Borg, if I were to lean the other way, and I'm sure Knut was a strapping young man at that age too, but Bjorn Borg was an idol. Who is who is the hottest tennis player right now? Or in your lifetime, you were said, like, they call me, I drop everything, I run to their side, and I be with them. Okay, so can I tell you <laughs> something funny? Yeah, uh, please. My... My Gmail address, uh, which is R-O-G-N-I-K, um, I made it when I was in like grade Ooh. six and I was I was smitten with Roger Federer. So in a very childish fashion, I was like, oh, I'm going to have my first email, which is R-O-G for Roger and oh. N-I-K for Nikita. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Such a girl. <laughs> That's, awesome. That's so cute. Panic with Friends has become sobby. The, uh, anyways, that's what you get when you add a third wheel. So, yeah, I would say Roger Federer. I mean, would it bother you that his right arm is that much bigger than his left? Have you noticed that? It's kind of weird. His left arm is almost like a gimp arm. Isn't that Nadal you're talking about? No. Federer is so, such a beautiful looking athlete, like so perfectly proportioned. And then his left arm looks kind of like Jason Calcanis. It's a little, little short thing. <laughs> oh, that's right. Nadal's the other way around. He's a lefty. That's his right Nadal's arm. Nadal's, yes. Everything on Nadal's big. I mean, he's perfectly proportioned. Whereas, How honestly, you know yeah, if you go look at Roger Federer, his left arm kind of looks smaller. Anyways, this has really fizzled out of control. This is now becoming more like my idol Conan show, which is what I wanted. So thank you, Nikita. Perfect. And, and I think that the timing of this is perfect, you know, because uh, you mentioned that uh, her third wheel is pregnant. And so she's going to be off on mat leave. So I think our launch time is perfect here. Who's sorry? Who are we talking about? Conan. Oh, Conan. Oh, yeah. she's leaving because she's having twins. Exactly. Oh, so is he going to go off the air or still do a show? Well, I think we're going to take off. And uh, by the time she comes back from mat leave, like, who knows? Well, also big news today, we're interviewing, I just told our guest, if we ever bring him on, because in the Conan format, the guest sometimes doesn't get to say anything. So I was telling him before he came on, and I'm so excited to have his fucking funny Dan uh, Turtleneck McMurtry, or however you pronounce his name. And uh, he's just so funny, young hedge fund guy, 29. Not single, Nikita, we've already cleared that. But... Um, I am really inspired as much as I'm not a fan. I'm a super fan of, and I don't like Jason Calcanis, but I'm a super fan of the All In podcast and I'm creating my own version inspired by those knuckleheads to talk about stocks and, and markets. And, and Dan's a finalist. He doesn't know that. I just told him. And John Street Capital is a leading candidate and he's interviewed and accepted. But I can still cancel it because it's my show. And I like Dan. I want to see how he does. And he was really funny in pre-show. So anyways, uh, not that they probably care about any of this. So I wanted to bring on Dan, who I've been dying to bring on because he's just original and funny. He's from uh, Richmond, Virginia, Nikita. 
and uh, the family was in restaurants. He says that his parents had a super nasty divorce. So Bill Gates' kids can relate to this. I'm sure hopefully they're tuning in. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what is going on with that? As as I told Ellen last night, that brings into focus. It gives a perspective to all women around the world that anybody can leave anybody, right? Nobody's safe anymore there. But his parents, he said, has a super nasty divorce. I don't think I want to talk about that. Uh, He uh, went to military school, then to, uh, oh wow, Phillips Academy, Andover, lived in China for a year, uh, he went to Notre Dame. Maybe that's where he met O'Shaughnessy. He's 29, but launched a hedge fund at 23, now a $63 million fund seeded by Greenlight. Um, you can tell he's smart in one tweet, right, Nikita? Yeah. And then when you well, hear he's him- he's a super Muga too. I don't know what that means. We'll ask him. You know what that means? Well, it starts with super. So, I mean- <laughs> So it could be Canadian. <laughs> First of all, that's the fact that his name is super is perfect because no one says super funnier than you. You you say super, S-O-O-O-P-E-R. Say it for us, Nikita. <laughs> super. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, and if you say mom. <laughs> super mom. And super mom's in the house. Super mom's in the house. That's what it's all about. That's so Canadian. But you're an actress, so you can lose that, right? Because I've seen your YouTube video where you faked everybody out and acted like an American. Um, so he's just great on Twitter, Super Magatu. And so is there anything left for him to say, or do we just cut I the, think end we've the show covered right pretty here? much everything. <laughs> all right. Well, Dan, I think you did great. Uh, Nikita, how do you think Dan did? I think he is one of the leading candidates for sure. <laughs> he nailed it. So uh, he knows a lot about social media, maintaining an audience, blah, blah, blah. He's very interested in the behavioral side of investing, which is kind of, I think, what investing has become. There is no textbook or fundamental. So let's bring him on. All right. Sounds good. Hey, guys. How are you doing? I, uh, well, with what time we have left, I'm hoping we can dig into the Manscaped 3 versus the Manscaped 4. I'm making a fairly high stakes decision here. Oh, uh, sorry. Did you pull it up? It just launched input. today. We're here in uh, 2021. The Nasdaq has been weak. So pitch me on pitch me on the Manscaped 4 versus the Manscaped 3. Very good. Okay. Why am I paying up for Manscaped 4? First of all, because I'm a seed investor. So <laughs> do we have a hammer? Because I just hammered and I appreciate that. disclosure. <laughs> We have no sound effects here. So full disclosure, I'm an investor and plan to get rich off this. Full disclosure. Rich and smooth, I would hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So second of all, just take a look at my nuts. Okay. So right here. <laughs> just one of them. I'm Nikita, turn away. Oh, shit, my zipper. So, uh, <laughs> so my nuts, the evidence too. So I'm full disclosure. I look at the look at the left nut, which has been done with the four, and this bastardized one that I became almost that they became a unicorn. Of, that is uh, that is Manscaped three. You can see the difference, correct? Howard is just glowing. Whatever he's done, I don't know what he's done, but he well, you is just, just got glowing today. <clears throat> Nikita, you just got a raise. Oh my god! Howard <laughs> lost his voice. Nikita's oh, now the highest paid on. person at Social Leverage <laughs> with, that, with that comment. So thank Nikita knows how to play the game. So, uh, no, what I would say, Dan, is, cause you're, is uh, the four is interesting because I have gotten in more fistfights and I've only been in two. So both fistfights that I've been in have been in the men's sauna for shaving in the sauna. And... <laughs> Where one minute you're wearing a towel and the next minute uh, it's a sword fight and a fist fight and both guys quickly recede to the corners of the sauna. But what I'm saying is the four works in water. And that's the sales strategy is they're sending you into saunas with the Manscaped device to demonstrate. That's the video I'm making. I don't know if they'll endorse this video, this disgusting video that I'm making in the sauna. I'm not saying they'll put their stamp of approval on but I think it has a high chance of virality. Yes. Especially if I'm wearing a gold turtleneck in the, in the shower and that's all in the steam and that's it. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> so anyway, so Manscaped for thanks for the plug of my company. Any other of my companies you would like to plug that are interesting to you? I mean, I'm, I'm sure with the amount of social media you have out there, I'll just start plugging them without realizing it oh. later in the, in the uh, chat. So we can so, probably get into, we can probably get four or five in. 
So Chamath, I didn't know this. Nikita did this because she does actual work at Social Leverage. She said you were yelled out by Chamath in a podcast a long time ago. So what was your first big social media break? Um, I really, I mean, I built it over time and it was just, I didn't have a lot of access or resources initially. And so there was this internet place where everybody was an anonymous, angry person and you could go trash talk and connect with smart people and hear investment ideas and get access to surprisingly successful people. And so I just built it over time. And then in 2019, it kind of got to this point where it didn't make sense for me to be anonymous anymore because probably upwards of a thousand people knew who I was. It was very easy to figure out who I was. And also I was a nobody, you know, the answer was very unexciting. And so at the same time, we were seeing something I think you appreciate, which is a lot of people, especially hedge fund guys, they just want to scrape social media. They want to pull stuff out of it. But a lot of the value comes from pushing stuff into the network and then seeing what the network spits back out. Correct. You have to really go two ways. But that's antithetical to hedge funds, which are still claiming they have information edges, um, you know, and things they clearly don't. Uh, And so we decided to publish this paper on what we thought was going on in online dating and dating as a whole, with one of the big points being um, I had done some traveling in the Middle East and Southeast Asia, and I had some uh, founders, female founders of companies tell me that um, Tinder and things like that were the first time they could date men who were not their classmates, their brother's friends, or their father's friend's sons. And you know that was their entire universe. And so I said, wow, that, I'm like, that's a huge change in society. So I what wrote this bummer. paper. That, that's when out. shit went bad for me. That's when I lost my edge. <laughs> but the lenses started being born with less than three arms too. So that was important. <laughs> so, yeah. So we, we put the, put out this paper. If you Google uh, Dan McMurtry dating paper, it'll pop up. And um, we didn't pitch a stock. You know, you could read it and take it as a pitch for match. But for compliance purposes, it's very important that I state that it's not a stock pitch. Um, and it went hyper viral because... It was, you know, online dating for years. I do some stand-up comedy, or at least I did in the before times. And online dating was always the cheap joke, because what you want in a joke is you want something that everybody believes is true, but nobody wants to say. And online dating was so easy because everybody had these swiping apps and nobody wanted to talk about it. And that had kind of burned out, I think, in the stand-up scene. But in the Wall Street scene, that was still, you know, it's about dating, and which is intrinsically about sex and things like that. And So everybody wanted to read it. Everybody thought it was fascinating. And I think everybody simultaneously thought it was brilliant and obvious. And I, at the same time, I decided to stop using the pen name and switch to my real name. And then that led to just a huge viral boom. Um, And also just a huge number of people just attacking me personally for absolutely no reason, which was enjoyable. But, you know, you get used to that. Especially when you get a large audience, you realize, you know, you 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 have to get used to that because, you know, if you have 100,000 people read something you do, you know, if 1% of them don't like it, that's still a thousand people telling you something that you probably don't want to hear. And, you know, your brain's not exactly designed to handle a thousand people coming at you like that. So you have to develop some different types of muscles, I think. Yeah. It's like boxing. I, I'm going to trust yeah. your math there on the thousand number. Cause I wasn't listening, but uh, Nikita check his math. The, um, I think you just said something super fascinating super magato is or magato or uh doma arigato whatever the fuck you you mean with that term that you use because no one's explained it to me yet is it's uh, the bad guy from zoolander oh you know I, why everybody loves that movie and i'm a big fan and i think i have to watch it it is a great movie right i i mean i don't know that i'd call it empirically great but it's very enjoyable <laughs> All right. Look My up, old look boss up used to have me do for me quickly. Can you explain <laughs> that to me? Yeah. Show notes that. I don't what does empirically uh, great mean? Roger Ebert or somebody's going to give oh, it a good review, but it. I think it's very enjoyable. What you said is astoundingly important and so hard. First of all, putting stuff in is the key. The deposit is the edge, not the extraction, which is why the hedge funds are underperforming and why the alpha is on the streets and young kids can do this like yourself, is what you get in sends things into different dimensions. And playing with the audience as comics do, the ones that just get up there and there's very few that can get up and just deliver. It took Chappelle forever to just, people would be quiet and leave them alone. But the great comics have to go back and forth. 
you making deposits or me making deposits or how Nikita met me making deposits and, and talking about finance is how you create alpha. The other thing is when Paul, founder of Manscaped, pitched us, I fucking pissed my pants, Dan. I was like, this is a great domain. This is everything. I knew I Manscaped, but no one admits that they Manscaped, right? I wasn't Manscaping to meet women. I was Manscaping because I'm disgusted. And I don't like sweat, like my boobs would sweat. And I'm like, people would say your boobs are sweating. So manscaping makes sense. And if you asked anybody if they manscaped, they wouldn't tell you. So when Paul presented it at our LP event, and he was already blowing up the company, everybody in the audience thought it was a joke. All our LPs thought, oh my God, Lindsay's funny. And then, and then he dropped the numbers and everybody's, the only time ever it happened, people clapped at an event because nobody's used to seeing revenue and profits at a startup. <laughs> my son was there with all the nephews and, and cousins, and we were all in their 20s, and we were all looking at them to say, is this real? Like, do people do this? And none of them admitted it. And therein lies the opportunity, like in e-commerce and all these things and investing. It's like dating. You said when everybody knows it to be true, but no one's speaking up about it to be true, there is money to be made. And uh, so what you said early on is super important. Absolutely. And I, the initial ads they made were some of the funniest ads I've ever seen. Yeah. My friends all forwarded around every one of their ads for probably two or three years just because, you know, they had the one with the bush that was talking and all the puns and, and it's just fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm working on some funny stuff with him right now. He just signed, uh, I shouldn't say this, but I will, the uh, PGA. Uh, not PGA, PBA, the Professional Bowlers Association. Can you imagine the jokes coming up for the next year? Oh, my that? gosh. Uh, yes. I don't oh know what gosh. would be funnier, PGA or PBA, but it's probably PBA. PGA would be funnier because I don't <laughs> yeah. watch the PBA, but like the amount of ball jokes coming at us for the next year. And, and what's super interesting is the involvement, right? So Dollar Shave Club comes out, and it was genius, and the same thing, great ads, blah, blah, blah. But it was pigeonholed as a commodity, Dollar Shave Club. Never could make the leap to being a brand. Paul, you know, and I didn't understand this when we invested or we would have invested more. But what Paul's done is actually build a brand. Manscaped isn't pigeonholed to anything. It can be a media company. It can be. So there's so many lessons that I've learned from just this one company about e-commerce, customer support, marketing. All for, like, And we've had him on the show, and he could be a regular guest because it's just every day I'm enlightened by like what you can do with the brand. And uh, Well, he, he turned it into a verb, right? Yeah. And, and I think like my 17-year-old brother, uh, because of the ads, and they're so funny, and they're so creative, like he asked me a couple weeks ago that, hey, I'm looking to order this like Manscaped kit. And before... I mean, you would never have those conversations because it's one of those private things that you do and nobody talks about. Yeah, and, and did you get him on? Because you didn't buy him Dogecoin at 17 cents and he wanted that too. So mad at me. <laughs> so so bringing, talking about behavior, Dan, and bring this full circle, Dogecoin. Of all the things that I've seen I wrote today, um, this is the most satisfying, upsetting, mystifying things that the youths have done. Um, what do you think about when, as a behavioral guy and as a hedge fund guy, what do you think of Dogecoin and what does it mean? I think the, the main takeaway here, the big trap is my generation of investors, we always came up with, I mean, everybody above our age got burned by 2000 or 87 and then 08. And we all kind of lived through 08, but we weren't really investing yet. And, um, you know, I, plenty of friends who lost their houses and stuff in 08. So when people were like, you didn't know what it was like. I was like, no, I watched my friend, you know, have to sleep in his aunt's living room for six months. And that was pretty, it was a little realer than your brokerage account getting hit. No offense. But I think people don't understand that our generation, the younger investors are hypersensitive to the types of risks that the older generation thinks we're not aware of. And then there's also just like a, a normal youthful rebellion to that. And just, this is hilarious and we're going to mess with this. And then there's also very smart, like, you know, if you tell us the first time you told us we're not conservative, we're like, yeah, you know, here's the liquidation value of the stock. The 50th time we're like, dude, we've done this. And then the 500th time we're like, here's a fucking dog coin. It's going to go to the moon, <laughs> LOL. And we're going to blast the internet with it. And we're just gaslighting old people with it as a oh, generation. I, I don't own any, but that's what's happening. And the older generation doesn't realize is it's not that technology's gotten stronger. It has. But what people people talk about tech or DTC products like you just were, and that's all great. But 
it's a paradigm shift to a networked world, going from one-to-many media to many-to-many media, and having cycle times for communications go down to sub-second, meaning the number of cycles, the number of communications is going to infinity really fast. But that's leading to all of these weird neurological effects because your brain's not used to having hundreds or thousands of opinions spouted at it. Your brain is used to thinking that an opinion from somebody means something, which is super wrong. Um, And so I think this knee-jerk reaction to dismiss things that well-trained investors in the past three eras have developed is actually the biggest weakness you can have because everything now is like this kind of metagame of it looks absurd, but it's actually not. And actually you shouting that it's absurd is what's going to give it the audience that makes it real. That's fantastic. It's kind of like martial arts or judo or jujitsu or something where there's a counter to every move and everybody knows the basics now. And we're now like six combos back and forth where you need to play. And I think uh, with Weinstein or whatever his name is, uh, the, one of the Teal Mafia guys calls it like kayfabe or whatever, this like principle like WWE. You create a heel and then you create a debate and then people line up on one side or the other and they get tribal about an issue that's completely fucking irrelevant, like a dog coin. And I met Jackson Palmer in 2017 at like the height of the crypto insanity. I went to like the Ethereum conference in San Francisco, I think November 2017, like right before everything went straight, right before that Thanksgiving where everybody talked about crypto and then everybody got rocked. And I mean, it was hilarious to hear him talk about it. And then, but now it's at this point where like the amount of attention being paid to Dogecoin versus the actual... And so you have people, you know, I have people every day emailing me, do you see this Dogecoin thing? This is a sign of froth. The end times are coming. The reckonings that didn't happen last year are going to happen. You know, the brush must be clear. They sound like Ra's al Ghul in the Batman movie where they think society needs to be burned down and rebuilt. And I'm like, really? Like, where is the material amount of money in this Dogecoin thing? Or even like in, you know, people who are concerned about SPACs. I'm like, is there a systemically important amount of money in these things? And if there is, isn't it just in treasuries? Correct. I don't really understand it. So I, there's a lot of things that the psychological impact that's happening, it's scaring the shit out of people for candid, right? They're looking at this and they've been around the block a few times and their experience is betraying them because they're seeing things that are so behaviorally horrifying to them that they don't realize that they're then becoming just instinctive and knee jerk. And they're not running basic numbers. Is this a material amount of money? Could this change into something else? Could people around Dogecoin fork it into a fixed supply thing? For is it actually sure. unlimited supply? Uh, and that's not just, everybody goes, well, it's unlimited supply. And I'm like, yes, but is it unlimited supply? Forever. Uh, no. Well, is it, no, but, no, no, but there's a more nuanced point. It's not unlimited supply at any individual point in time. There's a rate limiter on time with Dogecoin, which is why this pump thing is working, huh. is that the popular line that it's just unlimited supply isn't 100% true. So like one of the things, and I think... Um, I don't mean any disrespect by this, anybody, but there's a technique that I think Shamath does, and I think about a couple of the people do, I call it the 90% rule. What you do is you say something that's technically accurate, but like maybe 10% off of how a professional would say it, or maybe it's 10% not correct, but it's in spirit of it correct. And a great example is when Shamath said something like on Twitter, he was like, I'm up 120 basis points this year, and the market's up 30 basis points. And he said, so I'm outperforming by like 300% or 400% or something. So he just multiplied the two numbers. Every single person had <laughs> ever taken a math class yeah. lost their mind. <laughs> yeah. Nikita did too. Nikita unfriended him. I mean, yeah. I mean, every cable news network ran with it. Everybody lost it. But the thing is, do you actually think that Shamath doesn't understand basic math? Do you think the guy who like led monetization of mobile advertising for Facebook doesn't understand the way things are reported? The guy who's like leading several SPACs with CS, who's talking to bankers every day, who has a sophisticated family office, you could dislike the guy for, you know, a million things, but basic enumeracy is not one of them. And yet the knee jerk reaction, right, is that's wrong. And I think the reality is here's the brutal thing about Twitter, and I've kind of been on either side of it, yep. is that most people on Twitter, are strivers. They're people that are working really hard. They're trying to make it. And and candidly, for most people, it's not working out, especially the finance guys. The guys who went to finance, they're not getting the money. It's not working out. They've got the CFA. They've got the MBA. They worked at Goldman. They went to Wharton, and they're still not making a fraction of what they thought they would. They're not moving up. It's not working out because of top-down industry dynamics, which you've talked about ad nauseum. But that makes them really bitter. They're really, really bitter because they feel like they're getting 
screwed. And so when they see this guy who's making billions of dollars making a beginner mistake that would have gotten them fired, the amount of unrighteousness or injustice they feel is massive. And so it overrides all logic and reasoning. And, And they don't realize that this is my like big thesis right now is that technology is being used now to program people, not the other way around. And Shamath is, you know, in the freaking documentary about this that they put on Netflix, he invented half this stuff and he's doing it. And people don't realize, you know, it's just Pavlov. Um, it's crazy how effective this stuff is. Like a great example of this is the other day I tweeted this stupid joke where I was, you know, I was like, no one actually knows what's in chalk. They just teach you to accept the premise when you're so young that you just go with it. It can I think be it anything. tastes great. Right? <laughs> yeah. And you had people, real people with PhDs being like, you fucking idiot. Everybody knows what chalk is. Da, 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 da. And I'm like sitting there, I'm like, do you see this as tweeted from my iPhone? I tweeted this from a supercomputer in my pocket. Even if I didn't know what chalk is, I could obviously like think through this for even more than a split second. But you have people who have multiple PhDs from places like MIT who are completely they're hacked it's their brains are being hacked and they look like fools and they think they they think that they're smart because they're speaking not to validate what they're saying they're speaking to validate themselves and that's the weakness uh-huh. that all people have and I'm not immune to it you're not nobody's immune to I'm it I'm completely but, immune I'm so I'm so at peace with being wrong yeah I mean only you are immune to it everybody else is not but correct this is the stuff Thank that you. is kind of the dark arts that you have to study now. And the thing about Twitter and hedge funds that nobody really wants or, or, or institutional endowments and things like that, that nobody really wants to admit is even if the CIO isn't on Twitter and if he isn't, it's only because he's too old. um, All of their analysts are. So like there's this huge issue right now of mass group gaslighting of Mm. mimetics and ideas spreading like viruses. And if you're a CIO right now, you probably don't actually know what your firm's sourcing mechanism is unless you're pushing all your ideas down. Because, you're, I mean, the number of times I meet with a senior guy who runs a fund and he starts rattling off ideas, and I'm like, yo, you know your analyst ripped all of that from Twitter, right? <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, look, there are these clicks of people on Twitter. I'm not, even, I'm not saying they're bad ideas. And I'm not saying they're like hackish retail ideas. Right. But I'm just telling you, like, I'm not going to dox your boy. I'm not going to get anybody in trouble. But I'm just telling you, like, Person to person, you don't know how your own investment process works. And you don't realize you've already been fully, like, you've already been fully infiltrated by social media and by all these other networks. And not only that, but you actually should, like, kind of want that because if you are the only guy who's not participating in these things, I mean, same thing in January. At the end of, at the end of December, like, I'm not particularly smart, especially relative to other, like, hedge fund guys, but I was seeing where the liquidity was in the market and I was seeing the type of stuff happening on, stock twits and reddit and all these other places i mean there was just i mean just some crazy stuff happening and i just you know i went to my clients and i said look they're partners and i said look um i'm not going to play this game i'm going to take exposure way down yeah i believe i should be short half these companies but i'm short the stock i'm not short the company and i'm not you know i'm not messing with this and you know i had several people be like well you you know you lack conviction long-term investing blah 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 and i said okay cool and then in the next three months you know it was just a hedge fund blow up after hedge fund blow up and I'm like, look, how many times am I going to have to explain this to you guys? It's not going away. It's not going back because it's not, it's not 2000 and it's not, you know, it's not instant messaging. And, you know, last year was the first year that most waking hours for humans were online and they were, everybody was on one of five websites. Nobody really understands how significant that is. Everybody is now networked all the time. 24 you seven know, holding hands. And it's acceptable like, it's totally acceptable that, you know, if you ping me and said, hey, 8 a.m. 8 tomorrow, get on camera. I'd be like, cool. Yep. That's like a normal ask. Do you imagine how psychotic you'd sound if you did that two or three years ago? Maybe not you. You might do that. But normal people probably would not ask me to get on camera tomorrow at 8 a.m. But that's not a completely normal thing to do. Right. So people don't realize society, you know, there's this concept of the Overton window, which not mm-hmm. to be like a, a dropper of, of uh, concepts, but. Overton window refers to what like types of um, political policies it's acceptable to talk about in public. And so think about, I think you got to really zoom out a second and think about in 2017, uh, like 18, 19, you had Bernie Sanders out talking about universal basic income. And then you had Andrew Yang who ran this social media fake campaign thing. 
to push that idea as well. And it was preposterous. Everybody thought it was a joke. You know, it got some retweets. It was good for engagement. I'm sure some people had some nice side grifts there, but it was a joke. Yeah. The next, you know, I'm sure somebody ran a totally legitimate nonprofit that sold a lot of swag and the swag was all produced by, you know, their Shopify store, you know, normal stuff. Um, the next year, Donald Trump initiates universal basic income, admittedly because of a virus that understands. So I'm not saying it was a wrong move, but you need to understand how insane that shift is societally, that that went from unthinkable to expected. And actually the people almost revolted. I mean, I was in Richmond, Virginia when the protests were happening there. We were watching the breakdown of society happen um, because there was some uncertainty around it. That changed in a year. People don't realize how fast these big changes happen. And so, you know, when I just look at some people who think um, we're going we're gonna to be good investors because we, we do more conservative discounted cash flow analysis than the other guys, I'm like, you're like you're like a dude with a horse and a saber, like walking into World War II. You're about to have a really bad time. Like you, I can't even explain to you the ways in which you're going to get beaten down, and you're not psychologically prepared to deal with any of this stuff because it's going to seem random. It's going to seem it's just going to be chaos. You're going to there's going to be bombs dropping and machine guns blurring, and you're not going to know what either of those things are. Um, it's just a really weird time to be an investor, and I think you know you have to you have to really move the psychology stuff up and how you're really relating to the world into a really forefront position or these systems are just going to eat you. That's awesome. Really, it's a couple things to a really weird time to be an investor. I mean, I, I look at even our firm and we just brought on a good friend of mine who's like, he's super jujitsu at social, even though he was running a top hedge fund and he was just so unhappy for the last 10 years long, you know, because he's such a good trader and understands the social world and was used, was helping his firm make so much money off the social world, but not getting any recognition for it. And just like got worn out, which is the old system and came over to our world, right, Nikita? And then even Nikita, who's trained in the old world and obviously understood that. And she's kind of super jujitsu too, being an actress and SPAC woman and now learning, raising capital, talking to startups, doing interviews with founders. I mean, you have to be like, you can't, a CFA is maybe the dumbest 20 years ago. That's what you did to make a living today. You maybe were 60 again. And I told Danny this, who worked for me for a long time. I was like, Danny, your CFA don't lead with that. Right. Cause you're reading bad data. Like everybody's learned to even just stick bad data into the numbers. So you're reading bad data, like garbage in, what does a CFA do when everything's garbage in? So it's a really weird time to, to be an investor. I'm just summing up some of the stuff you riffed on, which was an epic riff. A uh, really weird time to be an investor. Tech is programming people. You know, Brad Fowler always said this. It's over. Like the machines are in control. And um, experience is betrayal. I like that. So I don't care where you stole it. I steal it from you now. And now uh, we move those three things up the ladder. Um, so that was great. The thing that blew my mind, because... Maybe they're part of the game, even though they're old, because I found myself getting conned a little bit by the Yahoo, like just the fact that it was Yahoo live streaming Berkshire Hathaway was, I think, a troll. <laughs> so were they yeah. trolling us by doing it through Yahoo, do you think? Are they part of the game by not being part of the game? Or are they aware that they're using Yahoo live stream to tell us that Bitcoin is rat poison still? What's your take on that, Super Magatu? Yeah, I mean, look, I I'm a huge Warren Buffett fanboy. I would say my probably my favorite people in in investing, Warren and Charlie, and you know that their crew. And then um, my least favorite people in investing, generally speaking, are people who tell you that they're fans of Warren and Berkshire, because and the, there's a great filter because you say, "What's your favorite Berkshire business?" And if they say C's Candy, you know that they know nothing nothing about Warren Buffett or Berkshire Hathaway, and that it's just a meme. And the reason is Warren Buffett is probably one of the greatest marketers to ever live. Has to be, right? He's, he's trolling me. He's, he's built this brand. Yeah. He's built this brand that's hyper consistent that allows him to, he doesn't have to answer any critical questions because he doesn't actually have to defend objectively right or wrong. He just has to defend consistency with his brand. Huh. And I think he's earned the right to make some mistakes. Having said that, make big mistakes, candidly, having said that he's made a lot of mistakes in the last five or 10 years and, and, you know, 
there are just human lifespan limits to what everybody can do. And, and he's in the 99th percentile of the 99th of the 99th of the 99th percentile. And like so, me. I have so no he's business. a little bit like me. Right. I mean, you're like a, you're like a Warren Buffett who's in better shape, right? Our, and who manscapes. And Thank you, Nikita. Well, right there, well, maybe you his know ears look I like don't. the burning bush. His mem is, if they closed it a close-up, the whole brand would be gone. So, so, I mean, I think they know, they know exactly what they're doing with everything. I mean, look, it wouldn't be a good look in a certain sense for Berkshire if they had slick tech. I don't know that it's inverting that to a troll, mm. but if Berkshire, if we woke up one day and Berkshire had like the best user, if they had user interface, if they had like what you would expect from Google or somebody, it would draw a lot of questions. Well, it would all of a sudden it'd be like, well, it would be inconsistent with the narrative. And what the, one, of the, one of the other things you'll see is that people who exist around the Berkshire ecosystem, there are several value managers, and I don't want to disrespect anybody, I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but there's several value investors that really market themselves as like um, Warren Buffett or Charlie's baby friends, yeah. baby Buffett's, right? And they all have kind of like good records of not losing huge amounts of money, but none of their records would stand on their own just in the vacuum. And so they all, they live off the same narrative and they're trying to, and actually recently, you know, I've had some like interesting interactions with a couple of these people. And, you know, I've asked them about like, you know, how do you think about your business? And they're very candid about, look, you know, I am looking for somebody where that's what they want. They want to feel that they're investing in a long-term conservative thing. They're not going to lose their money and they're going to compound well, and they get to feel like they're a part of the church of Buffett. And so at the end of the day, what are they selling? You're selling a psychological safety blanket. You're not selling an investment product at all. And there's like things that you'll see people like that do where like they will only take inbound clients because they don't want to go out. They don't want to convert anybody. They want like, you know, it's like, and, and, and so when you look at how these people behave, if you've ever studied cults, you see the exact same behavior. Um, and so I don't necessarily think it's malevolent or bad, and I, but I think that in the modern era with, with, you know, everything that Warren Buffett did is now being sped up a hundred thousand times and it's done on Twitter every day. It's the reason these people are doing these explainer threads and sub stacks that, you know, just do this out of whatever. It's just, it's all the same psychological manipulation techniques, which doesn't mean they're, doesn't mean they're malevolent. But if you really understand how Warren built his public persona, uh, and why he built it the way he did and how he, he changed his business at every scale level of capital he got to because, you know, he can't corner sure. precious metals or day trade at, you know, 10 billion, but he could at 50 million. And like the idea that Warren Buffett, the empire builder, bears any resemblance to Warren Buffett, the ruler, is naivete. It's naivete, but do you think he really believes that? I mean, Here's where I am on, on Bitcoin and quickly on this, and then we'll do quickly your thoughts on, yes. on, on the market and then a little bit about the business. And we'll have you back. This has been fun. Does he really believe it's rat poison? Like, like you and I know where the bubble is. It's in treasury, somewhere in the government balance sheet, right? Because that has to be the re limited supply or belief of limited supply is just good enough for me right now. I have enough faith in crypto's supply mechanics that, um, and I have no choice now. Like I flipped, I uh, wrote about this, the amount of money in crypto just went up. And so I'm fucked. Like I'm in, you know, I'm not bringing it back. Um, so do you really believe that he believes that or has he just got to stay on brand? Um, I think he's got to stay on brand. Cause I think the question, I, like, I think you, you invert the question with, with Warren, like for his fall, you got to keep in mind, he's always speaking to a retail audience and, Candidly, like he does things that I don't think he has the intention to, but have the effect of creating a more ignorant audience. Like the way they talk yeah. about circle of competence seems to encourage people to really not learn, um, yeah. which is the opposite of what it actually means. And the flip side of that is that, you know, most people don't actually have a circle of competence in banks, but because they read about Warren Buffett, they're comfortable buying bank stocks. Uh -huh. Right. And it's like, walk me through the balance sheet of, of Citibank, you no know, one could do um, it. Right. It's ridiculous, but it, it's like, so what they're really saying is everything about the Berkshire myth mythos is about optimizing for psychological comfort. Um, and that's, that is the great perversion of all value investing is it becomes the most dangerous style. I think you always have to flip with, with a value investor. Anytime anybody like that makes a statement like that, then you just invert it and you say, okay, do you want to bet against it? Like you want to do a prop bet or something like that? 
And, you know, you notice like when there was that hedge fund versus S&P bet that Warren yeah. did, mm-hmm. but you notice there's no such wager, wager being offered now. And, you know, I, and I also just think versus what Warren Buffett is doing and built in his lifespan and where things are going, um, the upside downside is just not favorable to yeah. him. And if he bought some Bitcoin and like the externalities, if he were to buy Bitcoin and his followers mirrored it and then it dropped 50% and they all puked it. Like that's a, that's potentially no especially upside, around, yeah. especially on the time that he may pass away um, in the next few years, you know, that could kill this empire he's built. He's not going to mess with it. Um, he's a wimp. So, uh, so you've calling Warren a wimp. I agree. And Yahoo Finance is the troll. The Yahoo streaming is just a super Magato troll. The um, Sorry, I, I was going to chime in and say that in a way, like, you know, everyone is running a cult and they're preserving their own cult, right? Like Warren Buffett has to continue to do what he has built his empire on, as you explained. And in a way, it's no different than pomp pumping Bitcoin every yep. time, it, you know, all day long. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. The Yahoo I don't thing. agree with that at all, but... Um, and you, what part don't you agree with? I, well, I mean, I, I think there's there's some difference of there's this big point. I think, and I think one of the reasons why Warren's so there's there there is this element of cult building and techniques that are culty, right? We 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 uh, discuss that a little bit, or at least I've ranted about it on this podcast. But um, there is a real question of the long term sustainability of certain strategies versus other strategies, and what percentage of the overall techniques you're using could be described as like outright manipulation. And I think Warren is trying to build something that is self-reinforcing because he's not taking undue risk and he's trying to do something that can compound for generations. It's not a high skew bet. So it's just, it's a different thing versus somebody who's highly combative and is pitching, you know, a high skew bet that might work out. But I think there's, there's something really different there about, and, and just, you know, the willingness to have debates and not have debates, you know, I, I, I think that there needs to be a distinction drawn between um, self-reinforcing sustainable strategies and usage of um, basically social engineering techniques and just like outright building an aggressive cult and and especially weaponizing a mob. And, and look, I think what Pomp does is incredibly effective. I also want to be like absolutely nowhere near it. And like a couple of times he's come after me and not to much effect, but I've just seen that work there. And I just, I think it is a very different thing Um, because the difference there really is Buffett's playing on a governmental level. And if he does something, senators call him, presidents call him, bank CEOs call him. He also has limitations on what he can do in that sense. And he needs to be, so I think there is a question of like, when you're looking at these cult strategies, the way I'd kind of describe it, when you look at this psychological game that's being laid out is, does the person, I think this is how you pick, pick who you want to work with. Do you look at the network as a mob of people which you can manipulate and that person you probably don't want to work with? Or do you look at it as an ecosystem which you want to contribute to and take from like somebody who lives in the jungle? Like you're going to you're going to bury stuff, you're going to grow stuff and you're going to eat some fruit and you're going to be kind of simpatico with the ecosystem. And if you are adding more value than you're taking, then you have this really long-term robust thing that you're not going to get nailed in any which way by the price movement of Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever. Um, you're just not taking those tail risks. And I personally feel, and this is like how I run my business, I'm not saying that pop story ends badly or anything like that, but I'm saying like, I don't think that the amount of left tail risks being taken is actually compensated for by right tails. And I could be wrong about that. There's plenty of people that are flamboyant and are you know running Tesla and it's working really well for them. But for me, I just find like, why am I going to take this left tail risk when I feel like I can still participate? Like, I can own some Bitcoin. I can just shut up about it. I have that amazing ability. Yeah, that's what I think a lot of people do. Yeah, I right? think that is an amazing ability. I do the opposite. Uh, I tell people just little bits, and it just drives people nuts because they don't know the full story, and they don't even ask the full story. I say I'm selling a little Ethereum. No one asks what percentage or how much did you own or when did you buy it. They're just like, idiot. And I just... <laughs> People go, are you mad? I go, no, it's part of me just having fun. Like, no one really cares that I sold it. I just am selling it for the people that know that I like to sell stuff on the way up. Just letting people know that I'm alive. And yes, it's okay to sell a little bit here at 3400 But I don't have to have a biblical case for it. 
The um, so quickly about the firm. Are you actively? I mean, congrats. I mean, I totally get how you think. So I'm. It's fun having people on the show that I would like to give money to or invest with. Where are you at with the fund, and and what's your outlook overall? Yeah, I mean, we called the firm Tyro, which is Latin for a student, and we really wanted to have this philosophy of always learning and really never assuming we have anything figured out because we think that's the indicator that you're dead. And so we really, over time, continued to zoom in on this behavioral stuff as increasingly the whole game. Everything else is table stakes. Of course, you need to know how to value something. You need to know financial analysis. You need to be able to read transcripts, do value-add research, do all this other stuff. That's all, you know, but that became commoditized sometime between 95 and 2010. And you look at the curve, the number of people have CFAs or how many people went through banking and or the number of people like internationally, you look at companies like Deal, D-E-E-L, you know, you can go online, you can hire somebody anywhere in the world in like 10 minutes for the contract and a 1099, right? Know. You know, so um, you, you once that something becomes commoditized. I think the market's become a pure meta game. It's the game of the game. How do you, um, and where does it go from there? And I think the thing is the humans are still very human. And actually the rise of passive means the humans as a smaller percentage of the market, when they move at once, they have a bigger price impact um, because it's just everybody running out the fire door, door of a theater, you know, and it's old as the hills. And so it's all the same stuff again, but remixed and much faster. So yeah, it's still music, but it's going from, you know, jazz to dubstep. It's just way more aggressive, way faster. And then there's all these different games being played. And so we spend a lot of time trying to understand the fundamentals and all the other stuff, you know, what's going on in these businesses and what's going on in the supply chain, but also what is the psychological game going on in the market? And what I find is that, you know, the places where you just ton it is if you can find a lineup where you've got great fundamentals, good business improvement, you've got a really long-term runway and you have some really distracting psychological thing that's distorting the price, or more importantly, maybe in this era, uh, what we call mandate arbitrage. So more and more capital is just driven by somebody's trust's investment policy statement or an endowment's investment policy statement or the S&P index's rebalancing rules, that type of stuff. Um, those legal mandate-driven things are, are, are really, really powerful and just getting bigger. So we want to see a clustering of understanding why the opportunity exists because of legal mandate, because of agency costs and behavioral things, you know, something where like you can't go to your LPs and say you own it because they are going to get upset. And if we see that plus the good business, plus, you know, yada, yada, it's all good. I think the takeaway from the last year looking forward, and so that's basically strategies. We're looking for clustering of those things that are either very consistent or inconsistent. And we don't try to predict, we try to observe. So, you know, we might have a startup position on, but when we see thesis confirmation, we're going to add. But we do not really like to do uh, like big bet because we think X is going to happen. Um, I don't think it's necessary because I don't think the market can, the market prices and new information as well, or I don't know what it does relative to history. I just don't think it does it well. Anyway, looking forward, I think the takeaway from the last year has to be a profound optimism for humanity. We just took a global pandemic on the jaw and, you know, as pissed off as everybody is, we're calling it the five aces problem. It's like you being dealt a poker hand that has four aces in it. And people are like, would be good if we had a fifth ace. I'm like, there's no fifth ace. There was no fifth ace in the deck. What are we talking about? You can tap something on your phone and you can have a pizza in 20 minutes. You can have a date in five minutes. You can have anything you want delivered to your house within two days. Like, woe is you that you couldn't get the specific dumbbells you wanted at market price that week. Like that was that was really where the where the pain came in. But the extent to which our society like during quarantine, we were living a better life than people in the 1960s were able to live you know, you know, it's like, you know, people in the 25th income percentile now live better, better than Rockefeller did, but we're going up the curve on that. It's getting exponential. And so people are not understanding how insanely awesome the performance last year was of humanity. And yeah, we have some supply chain chokeholds left over from last year that are like obvious knock on effects. And we've got some issues around the government explicitly putting all risk onto the dollar and making some big bets on modern monetary policy. Um, and those are, you know, genuinely concerning things, but, um, those, you know, the things to be concerned about are super obvious, but I, I just think, I don't see how you can't be optimistic about our ability to solve those problems. And also we're solving problems globally. Correct. Um, and I think one of the things people struggle with, I just wrote about this was, um, you know, as the world gets better, 
as you like go from being a caveman to being an office worker, what, what happens is your job is moving further and further away from kind of base Maslow needs. You're not hunting a saber-toothed tiger. You're typing in data entry or you're you know, doing social media posts. And that's why every generation looks at the next generation and thinks they're soft as hell. You know, they didn't have to walk both ways to school uphill in the snow. It always happens. But that's, that actually is what progress is. Yep. And so one of the things that people struggle with is they look at these new startups. They look at a lot of the stuff that you invest in. And they go, look at how trivial and silly that shit is. This is like nonsense. Like, why do you need to, why do you need to tab on your phone and buy a fractional share? I saved money up and I called my broker and I bought one share of IBM. And it's like, yeah, but all of the incremental value, if society is getting better, incremental value comes from ever more trivial things, which is really kind of a counterintuitive thing. Uh, and it drives people a little bit nuts. So like to have that happen while you're having social media melt everybody's brains and cable news continue to melt their brains, like people are, are struggling with their lack of real problems while we're creating value from things that don't matter. And so uh, it's making it very hard for thoughtful people to make money. But I think that if you can escape all of that, there are numerous and candidly, in my opinion, obvious ways to make money in the market. You, you, you nailed it because Nikita has, we use Deal. For, I haven't even met her in person. She's an actress, spec. Like I said, like we're all here doing nine different odd jobs, and we're just not overthinking it. And uh, if you don't overthink it, like you said, it's humanity. This is, was a big moment. The uh, And doji. So uh, it was a fascinating, I mean, we're, we hit the hour, so I cut you off just because I just want to not, I want to have you back and not bore sure. people. And I think you did a great job. I'm a fan. Nikita was hoping that you were single. So listen, just ping us if something happens there. And Canute too says he wishes you were single. <laughs> that's a first. Yeah, that's, that's a first, yeah. No kidding. Canute's a sucker for the brain. The uh, John Street Capital when he listens to this, he's going to be nervous at John Street that he may have lost a slot. Um, My vote is with Dan, just so you know. Well, that's not cool. You have no, your vote, your Canadian <laughs> vote. I, it's, like, uh, it's like 0.8 votes, right? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, and it's up from <laughs> 0.7 last year. So the Canadians have had yeah. a run. Um, all right. Well, good luck to you. It's great to have you. We'll see you on the internet. Uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Howard. See you. The, uh, so that was the smooth stylings. He's like a jazz musician of philosophy, of uh, finance investing philosophy, which is fun because everything's connected now to investing. And like he said, it's a, uh, what did he say? It's a uh, weird time to be an investor. Well, isn't that the best time when it's weird? So I think that's what I would say. It's the best time ever to be an investor because if you can be weird, it's like, this, it's like New York in the 60s or whenever New York was cool. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, this is the time to strut your stuff. All right. You are listening to Panic with Friends with Nikita Howard and Canute. You can find us on uh, iTunes, Apple somewhere. If you search my name or on Spotify or on Google or any of your favorite podcast apps. And subscribe so you never have to worry about once a week missing these podcasts. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Nikita and Canute, see you later.